Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Thank you for your download. Got a great episode. I'm Phil Dark, your host with my fellow host, Brandon Stiver, and I'm excited to get going on what we're talking about today. But before we get there, it's been a bit. Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I, I didn't get to go watch. I, I'm going to go to my son's soccer game uh, today, uh, but his soccer game is about 30 minutes from Tacoma. Yeah. I know you just got to go watch some soccer games of your son, but you yeah, were going 30 minutes away. Yeah. So yeah, how much Hawaii, man? It was really cool. It was a great, great trip. We were able, I mean, as I've said, I never, ever thought, I was so grateful to God because I never thought we would have been able to have our family go on a trip all together to the Hawaiian Islands. Um, as you know, the the ministry uh, salaries are not very, very good um, from the standpoint of Hawaii vacations with a family of seven. But when you get some Southwest points combined with a 40% off sale, combined with two of your girls at YWAM and one of your sons playing at Biola who plays against three Hawaii teams, that's the that is the equation that made it possible. And All by the way, a friend who gives you a house and a car in Kona, um, and uh, you can't, you, you just, yeah. that's what makes it possible. And it was just such a gift, such a gift. That's awesome. Family, um, to be able to do that. So I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm stoked on that. And it was, it was cool. This, you know, beautiful places, uh, great. You know, it's also really neat because my, you know, Beck and I got engaged out there and we lived out there for a year. And so to be able to show the, show the kiddos, uh, all the places that were special to us, um, was just, it was a, it was a really, really cool week. Really cool week. That's awesome, man. Yeah. It's, it's great when all the stars align. Uh, so that's cool, man. Yeah. Well, we're just, I'm just, it's cold. And uh, I'm just going to drive. And I don't even think my son wants me to come. Uh, so uh, a little different scenario. But uh, but it's soccer <laughs> all the same, which is a sport right. you I both love. We do love it. We do love it. And the soccer was really secondary to that trip, as it is usually even when we're going to watch our kids. It's just being there with them and, and being able to support them and encourage them. And yeah, obviously enjoy the sport we love. But um, there's not many times you're just going to cruise to a youth soccer game, you know, or even a college soccer game for that matter. Um, and so it's just really, really neat to be able to, to be able to support them and, and just encourage and, and, and be there. So, yeah, so I, and that's, that's something that I think is just part of what we do in, in this podcast as well is just how we're encouraging people to encourage people, how we're encouraging people to be there for their kids, how we're encouraging people to, to take those family vacations when you can. Cause I, my, my 12 year old kept saying the whole week, he's like, Another core memory, another core memory. It was so classic. I was like, you know what? He's probably right. Like these, these are memories they will remember the rest of their life. And to be able to create those memories, because so much of what we do in life is just, is, is rote, is the same. And we don't, they're not those core, there's not those moments. That book, the Heaths wrote, The Power of Moments. And I think, you know, it can be a moment of literal moment, literal minute, or a moment of a trip or a moment of, you know, something special that you're doing on a birthday or those, those different things that do create those core memories. No, that's so good, man. Yeah. We got to create memories with our kids. Uh, I'm doing a father daughter dance tomorrow, trying to create some memories with my daughter. Yep. Uh, so yeah, we got to do that. Uh, excited for this, uh, conversation as well. 
you know, you guys are hearing about Phil's family, my family. We're always talking about family here on Think Orphan. Really quick before we get into the show, I do want to just kind of say, you know, when this releases, it's early November. It's going to release in like a week and a half from the time of me and Phil recording this. But um, we are already at about as many downloads in a year as we've ever had, uh, which is kind of cool because still got a couple months left in the year. So while we uh, are are doing well in terms of downloads, you know, we, we're not getting in a ton of reviews. So I'm not guilting any of our, you know, hundreds of listeners or anything. But uh, if you could, it would help us out uh, tremendously. If you go on to uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, you know, wherever, give us some stars, give us a review. Um, it just helps people know that, hey, there's people out there that are thinking about marginalized communities in the global South, uh, thinking about orphans and vulnerable children. Um, and we, and you know, I was just having a conversation with somebody earlier this week that has been a listener and reached out because she's supporting uh, a, a children's home, a small children's home in Uganda and wanting to to get some support. So we know that people are out there, that they're listening. Um, so we want to hear from you. And if you could send us a review, give us some stars. Uh, again, that just helps us out tremendously uh, as the podcast has grown, especially. So, uh, but aside from that, we got a good interview uh, and I did this interview solo and I was learning something and Phil, I, I know you've gotten a chance to listen to it and, and we'll get into it, but we have uh, Mackenzie Archer on the show today. We got Mac on the show. Uh, she is a PhD uh, uh, candidate. She's getting towards the end of her program and has been doing uh, really important work uh, learning and uh, and supporting uh, uh, movements in Haiti around orphan and vulnerable children. So um, we're going to hop into that interview right now and uh, let's do it. Well, uh, Mac Archer, uh, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. Uh, really excited to uh, jump into your work today, but but how are things going for you? Ah, uh, good so far. I'm currently on vacation, but uh, definitely missing Haiti, always in my heart. <laughs> right. Well, uh, a vacation uh, in the fall is is always a, a welcome opportunity. And obviously, you've been doing a ton of research lately for uh, for your doctoral work, and so a vacation well deserved. Uh, and you. and I hear I hear Portugal is wonderful. Um, Mac, as we uh, hop in, I would love if you could just take a minute and and just introduce yourself to the Think Orphan audience and and share, yeah. you know, how did you become involved uh, in work with vulnerable kids? Yeah. So. Um... Like you said, I am Mac Archer. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Tennessee. Um, my degree is in anthropology, but I specialize uh, specifically in human rights and then with a focus predominantly on child protection and capacity development that relates to child uh, protection. So I have been in Haiti off and on now for almost 16 years. That's crazy to say that out loud. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I was a teenager. Um, so my first trip to Haiti was actually on a short-term mission. Um, and then the following three trips back would be with my church. And then on the fourth trip, 
I actually was volunteering and living in an orphanage. Um, one of the ways that I kind of got into child protection specifically was during that time period of living at this orphanage, um, I began to notice some things that didn't quite add up, so to speak. Um, you know, predominantly the fact that I had multiple parents coming daily to visit their children as I was listening to the staff at that orphanage, you know, telling people that were visiting, like other expats, other foreigners that were coming, that these children have no parents, they don't eat regularly, you know, we don't have any money to support them, please give us donations. Um that actually led to them asking me to terminate my volunteership early. And mm. um, I can remember, you know, sitting back on the plane to go home, I was, I felt like such a failure. <laughs> and I was like, something was wrong. And I couldn't quite pinpoint yet. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know necessarily what the problem was yet. Um, so I came back and I actually picked up my first degree was in political science. Um, and I actually picked up a second degree in anthropology and decided that, uh, through that, those two degrees, you know, I would combine that with my passion for, you know, what I love about Haiti and serving, you know, the community specifically like within the child protection sector. And I decided to write my thesis on, the impacts of short-term missions and how, you know, this approach that has been, you know, the main way that short-term missions are conducted is actually quite harmful and negative. Um, and once that was finished in 2015, um, or excuse me, 2018, um, I actually got linked up with an organization called Haiti Mama, and there, I can remember vividly, like sitting on the balcony overlooking part of Port-au-Prince, and uh, my friend was like, "Mac, why don't you tell the story about the kids?" And so mm -hmm. that's where I started uh, really diving into child protection, um, specifically within the orphanage system in Haiti. And that was the year that I got authorized to work with the social welfare department in Haiti, known as. Um, Institut Benoit Social Travail Research, and it's also known as Ebers. Um, that's just the easiest way most people who call it by Ebers. Um, and so I was actually uh, given authorization to work as kind of an extension on their behalf to interview children. And um, that led to taking their testimonies in some cases that the mama was working on at the time with Homeland Security um, mm -hmm. that dealt with the uh, behind the scenes and some of the more atrocious types of um, orphanage systems that were happening there in Haiti. Um, a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse, and a lot of like forced malnutrition. Um, mm -hmm. So the next Two and a half years were spent with Haiti Mama doing that research with them and IBESR. And that just has led to to this research now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really appreciate, uh, Mac, about kind of how you're framing it. And one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on this show is, you know, we regularly talk about, we'll say something like 
scripture and research agree that kids belong best in family. And the reality is we actually, we, we shouldn't just say, oh, the research says this. We need people to actually go out and do the research. Mm-hmm. And we can all go back to, for example, the Bucharest Early Intervention Project in Romania, and we can see from a very uh, categorical standpoint all of the harm, you know, that was done to children that were that were left in those institutional uh, settings. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has been research in Haiti as well, and and it's been central to your own uh, uh, research and and both master's and doctoral work. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited. We're gonna. I, I'm sure that as our listeners heard you, you know, they probably picked up on a word or two and we were going to dive into all of that. Uh, uh, probably the foremost word, though, is Haiti, Haiti mm-hmm. itself. Haiti, uh, we are recording this in October uh, 2023, and um, Haiti has been a challenge, I mean, to say the least. Um, so I think it's really important for us to kind of set the context around the work that you're involved in. Um, and even the security situation in Haiti, which has absolutely devolved uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years. Can you maybe just describe what life in Haiti is like right now? Um, I, I know you're living down, I think, are you near Lakai? Is that right? Yes, mm-hmm. I yeah. am in so what is, what is What is life in Haiti like right now? And you know what what's the impact of this conflict and, and lack of governance on vulnerable kids? Yeah. So um, I always answer this question kind of in two parts because, of course, I get asked this question so much. Um, Like, what is it like? Like, are you afraid? Um, And the first thing that I want to say is, yes, there is definitely insecurity in Port-au-Prince. But I always like to remind people that Haiti is not Port-au-Prince. Haiti is Lakai, Haiti is Jacmel, Haiti is Capetian, Haiti is Jeremy. Um, and outside of Port-au-Prince and even just within the zones that the insecurity is highly active, um, you know, predominantly speaking about the gangs, um, that of course is having a major impact um, in like shockwaves to the rest of Haiti. But as for me and people in the South in Lakai, um, you know, there is very much so life still happening. It isn't just devastation and, you know, diabolical suffering. There is life. There is peace. Um, yes, through the insecurity, we have felt major repercussions, um, you know, really in the areas of food security Um, And another big one is gas, which I don't think a lot of people realize, but Haiti is a country that has been centralized um, and it has been done so strategically. Um, So you have Port-au-Prince, the capital, where most everything is imported and exported from. And the gangs and other people who are, you know, active in this type of insecurity, um, they're taking advantage of that. Because they can literally cut off the supplies to the rest of Haiti. Um, so for us, when it comes to things like we're able to, you know, walk around freely. We have restaurants. We have grocery stores. We have, you know, activities where children get to go and play and do sports and things like that. But then there's also the, the flip side to that where people who are already living 
in extremely impoverished conditions um, are no longer able to afford what they before that could barely afford. Um, You're having families make decisions between uh, child's school fee and medication or a hospital visit for something that may be, you know, crucial to their health or being able to feed their family for the next two weeks. Um, so you're seeing the the type of insecurity in ways that are more socialized, um, more economic, not necessarily, you know, a fear that we have of the gangs in the South, um, but that has dramatically impacted the child sector. Um, mm-hmm. I can remember two years ago when I first uh, moved to Lakai, um, I did not see any children that were working and or living on the streets. So we know that they're called street children. I hate that name. I hate classifying them as that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most simplistic terms, we can just use that at the moment. Um, the amount of street children has skyrocketed. Um, within my own research, looking at orphanages, um, I had visited just for my research alone, 18 orphanages. All but two have taken in children since the 2018 law that prohibited um, the uh, that children were to be accepted into the orphanage institution without either permission. Um, mm-hmm. Main reason they stated that was because people, families from Port-au-Prince, were honestly sending their children to orphanages in the countryside in hopes that they would be safe. Um, So that is one major um, impact that we're seeing. Another impact is because of this insecurity, and I think that you had mentioned, um, we kind of talked about this previously, prior to COVID, you had a mass tourism that was coming to Haiti to visit these orphanages and provide support, provide um, donations because people crave that interaction in order to validate why they need to donate. Um, and all of the orphanages visited for my research, every single one of them said that if it was not for um, NGOs like the World Food Program and um, other various, like Save the Children, other various organizations supporting them, they would have no food for their yeah. children. They would have nothing. Um, and we're seeing a mass increase in malnutrition within the orphanage systems outside of Port-au-Prince because there is that lack of um, that lack of transportation, that lack of access, and the inability, even when they may have access to those, the financial inability to obtain things as basic as food for a numerous amount of children. Right, right. And and I appreciate even how you kind of juxtapose some of the differences between what it was like before COVID versus right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we want to always be careful because we do understand that orphanages are not a monolith, but we also understand that um, that they are uh, that they're not the that they're not the best for for where a kid uh, should be raised. And um of course, if you talk to a lot of people that have engaged in orphanages, it's often a very kind of small set. Maybe they're very invested in one children's home and they've visited a few others. But for you, I mean, you've been in upwards of 100 orphanages in Haiti, I think. 
I mean, mm-hmm. quite quite a large uh, sample set. Can you just describe, you know, what does that situation generally look like? And you can say, you know, pre-COVID versus now or pre, yeah. you know, government collapse versus now or, or however, but, mm-hmm. but how would you describe it based on this pretty large sample set? Um, definitely would say that, like you had mentioned, people come and it's like they get uh, fixated on one place. And I think that oftentimes people who are visiting orphanages forget that these are not, you know, government supported places. These are institutions which rely upon donations solely, um, whether it be from their own community, which many of them now, post COVID, especially since 2022 with the rise in insecurity, are often reliant upon their own Haitian community to drop off food to be able to bring people clothing so that they can just, you know, have clothing and donate that Um, to be able to accept children for free at school by talking to the principal because the orphanage can no longer sponsor a child um, like like before. Um, And of course, there is, like I had mentioned previously, a very, very high increase in malnutrition. Um, in the South alone, I know that Ebers is working towards shutting down um, at least at 20, I believe, orphanages that are all code red, um, where they have reports of malnutrition in every single one of them, as well as physical abuse. Um, so we are seeing a shift towards the government trying to address these issues, Um in Port-au-Prince, it's just not possible because the government cannot even get around to some of these orphanages. In the South, uh, thankfully, there is better structure. Um, and because of that security, there is the ability to address these types of needs. But um, when you see, you know, like for instance, when I worked with Ebers in the South, they had not even been paid. The staff hadn't even been paid in eight months. And they're still getting out and working and doing. But to what capacity, to what ability are they able to actually make an intervention? Because they are also reliant upon um, donations, essentially, and other organizations. Are you, are you describing the IBSR that had not been paid in eight months? So yeah. like the government social workers are not even paid. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. I just want to make sure. No, no. It's, it's unreal. Yeah. Um, you know, oftentimes they would ask us, I remember it kind of became a joke and stuff amongst us at uh, Haiti Mama because we sat down in a meeting one day and we were, this was before COVID, this was in like 2019. And they looked at us and they said, we have many, many projects that we need to work on. And we're like shaking our heads and we're like, yeah, absolutely. We are so excited to work with you. And they were like, which means you have to fund it. (laughs) And they were like, you essentially have to provide these resources for us to be able to even do the bare minimum of our job within child protection. So then you have these orphanages, um, a lot of them at first, uh, you know, knocking on the door, they see me and they're like, what are you doing here? Oh my gosh, we have a visitor. We have a visitor. We have, you know, somebody. And I'm like, no, I'm actually with Ebers. And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> what are you doing here? We don't, we don't want you to see this. Right. And um, then comes, you know, the reality check where a lot of them are like, 
I can't support these children. I have five to, I mean, the, I think that when I was doing my research, um, this was in 2022, the orphanage that I visited with the least amount of children was five. The orphanage that I visited with the most amount of children was upwards to 300. It was insane. And um, none of them, none of them were able to support the needs, even the most basic of needs of every single child there, not even talking about the emotional and the physical needs, um, but just, you know, being able to provide food and education and proper living standards for them. Um, So, yeah, it's definitely been a massive challenge um, that has, you know, evolved into very dangerous situations for the children that are in these institutions, so much so that this is starting to make orphanages who may have previously been by the book, so to speak, you know, turn towards, you know, illegal activity or things that could compromise children's safety in order to be able to meet those financial needs because they're not getting them from, you know, the previous tourists who were coming to these orphanages. Well, and that kind of all of these factors, you talk about the government having such poor infrastructure and uh, capacity that they literally need funds just to do their work as they're not getting paid for several months. Mm -hmm. You're talking about what appears to be some level of divestment from uh, from the West because of all the conflict and short term teams aren't coming over and, and all of that. And yet these orphanages are perpetuating to whatever extent they're able to, but the quality of care has really gone even worse than what it was before. Does all of that kind of sound like, is that, is that a, is that a good summation? Yeah. And to the point where they're even using that, um, that, uh, um, that devaluation of like child security, they're even using that as a tool, as a means of propaganda to say, look, You've left us here, and this is what you've left us with. You need to come back. You need to support us. Saying that to the Westerners, yeah, that had supported them prior, yeah, and and to me that that kind of underscores the bigger systemic problem, which is just mm-hmm. that we uh, as Westerners have poured an incredible amount of money into a system that is um, just profoundly not only unsustainable, but it's also just not not good child welfare practice exactly. um, to, to even have these kids in residential care, especially when, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of these are poor kids from rural areas that are coming into cities um, seeking not uh, seeking education and seeking all those other things when really what what is best is if they have family. Mm-hmm. Um, as it's, it's, it's really interesting and, and it should give us pause. Anytime we as uh, Westerners are saying we're going to go and engage in the global South in any regard, because we can create these systems uh, that are, again, unsustainable, unethical, and then we can put other people at risk, and in this case, specifically children. You know, and along those lines, um, you know, you mentioned uh, your master's thesis that that did con. Uh, certain short-term missions, you know, and obviously short-term missions is something we've talked about on the podcast in the past. Um, you know, a lot of people do talk about short-term missions and 
sometimes it kind of seems like it just goes back and forth between shut down all short-term missions, Mm -hmm. you know, that type of critique. And then on the other end, your short-term missions are the best, you know, they're the lifeblood of our missions program at church and yada, yada, yada. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like this, like really harsh critique or really kind of uh, unrealistic praise. Can you uh, just share with us about the research that you conducted, you know, during your grad school experience around short-term missions and orphanages and and yeah, I don't know. Is there even any hope uh, for these cross-cultural short-term trips? Like, what does this look like? Um, yes. So this, I hope that I don't spend too long answering this question because <laughs> I feel like it's I a long thesis. Yeah, don't read us the whole thesis. Work of classwork for this. Right. Just give us the questions. Um, yeah. So the summary of this is, I mean, it's very much so understood that besides the outliers of this, people participate on these trips with the best of intentions. In fact, that's what my thesis is called, good intentions. You know, we have, to the best of our abilities, we are told biblically to go out and make disciples. But I think that that gets maybe jumbled up a little bit, and there's kind of this shadowing of the real purpose of that, where engagement doesn't necessarily mean, you know, an absolute intervention. You have, for instance, um, during my master's thesis research, um, there wasn't a single team that I wasn't following that had somebody with an actual skill set that could have used and been beneficial. Um, Predominantly, it was teenagers or people that were just like, oh, I want to go and visit Haiti and love on children or love on the community. And things like that are great in theory. But I always ask people, and um, I'll tell the story that I had written actually in my thesis. Um, So we'll call this man Doug. (laughs) Um, Doug came to Haiti, and he was staying uh, with us at uh, the compound at Haiti Mama. He was a pastor, and he actually had adopted a young girl from Haiti, him and his wife, uh, when she was 15. Her backstory is just insanely traumatic. Um, that's a whole other situation, but they came back yearly after that in order to volunteer and kind of work at various orphanages as a way to give back for what they saw was getting a daughter. Um, so I remember one day Doug went out with his family and they were painting a church or an orphanage, excuse me, they're painting the church on the orphanage compound. And he had been there previously about two years prior to that. And he had apparently painted a mural. And he got back and I had been kind of, we had been going back and forth. I wouldn't say that we were friends. (laughs) This whole trip, I was kind of like, what are you doing? Like trying to really get him to be, you know, more thoughtful and self-reflexive about his position there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that day he came back to me. And he walked into the living room and just started sobbing. And he was just in tears. And he was like, Mac, I understand now what you're saying. And he was like, I went and I visited this orphanage that my wife and I had been to two years prior. And I had painted this mural. He's like, I'm not a painter, but I was so proud of this that I could leave a piece of me in this Mm -hmm. orphanage. I was so proud of me. And then he goes, and I came back to see that it had been painted over. And when I asked the staff, 
they looked at me and they go, well, we have teams that come about every three months to paint. And he realized in that moment that the trick wasn't necessarily about what he could do for the community. It was more about how he felt doing that and the self-gratification he got from doing that. And it was only until he realized how, you know, basically how unuseful he actually was there that he really started to say, you know, what am I doing here? Because me painting a mural is clearly not benefiting the children at this orphanage. This was something that he took personally and he kept asking himself, well, why did I feel so bad about seeing that being painted over? And then it clicked to him. And that's when he started, you know, really like being upset. And he was like, I realized that that trip was never about the children or never about giving back to a country that gave me a daughter. It was about how I felt in those moments because it made me feel good. It made me feel like I was doing the Christian thing. And, you know, it really, it really impacted him and it really impacted me. And since that, uh, I believe that him and his church have stopped. They do do some still support stuff um, at various places because I think that they understood that to cut that funding would also be detrimental to the children within those facilities. Um, But he actually has started working with Ebers and they tried to, you know, do some sort of reinter like reinvention of the programs in which they were initially supporting that really focused more on family-based care now at think orphan we are all about creating lasting solutions for children and families you've heard us talk time and again about how poverty impacts families and literally creates orphans one of the ways that we can combat poverty and strengthen families is by supporting local enterprise in the global south and changing our purchasing decisions. That is why I'm so excited to share with you about Sojourn Studio. Sojourn Studio empowers young women and moms on the Thailand-Myanmar border through dignified work as they handcraft beauty to rewrite stories and lift communities. Women earn fair wages, educational scholarships, savings funds, health benefits, and maternity care. Beyond their ethical production and the opportunity to strengthen families, the jewelry itself is truly beautiful. I value fair trade products and have gotten my wife multiple pieces of jewelry from Sojourn Studio. She loves wearing them and we love knowing that the purchase made a difference for families in Southeast Asia. With Christmas coming up soon, get your loved ones something that they will enjoy and wear with pride. Click the link in our show notes or visit sojournstudio.org to start shopping. Well, and I I really appreciate that story, Mac, because one thing that I have seen over and over again is the the engagement from the West that is not good practice and probably even the engagement from the West that is good practice. It is often undergirded by emotion more than anything. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. Not, it's not intellect. It's not, you know, we, we can we can um, even as believers, we can go to scripture and say, well, I'm just doing, you know, James 127 or whatever. But James yeah. 127 can have a myriad of applications. Exactly. It doesn't have to mean exactly go and be at this orphanage, which, by the way, the orphanage doesn't have any of the widows, you know, exactly. <laughs> which is what James 127 actually says. But but it, it it is rarely like, oh, I was convinced by this research or, oh, it's because of my, you know, faith and my belief in, in, in the mm-hmm. word of God. Like 
it is often just undergirded by emotion. And what took place for Doug was a disruption uh, that was like an emotional disruption. Like you said, he came in bawling because he had wrapped so many emotions into what he viewed as service and a piece Mm -hmm. of him and giving back and all of that. But it it was, as you said, it was more self-gratifying than anything Mm -hmm. else. And and I I don't want to (laughs) be overly cynical. I mean, I have, um, you know, I have watched kids at orphanages, uh, you know, as a short-term missionary without supervision. Like, <laughs> that's a bad, that's a bad recipe. Yeah. Uh, that was a bad recipe. And we we talked earlier uh, this year with people where that can really go sideways, which yeah. is when uh, even Westerners sexually abuse children. Um, but so this is no shade at Doug or anybody else, but we do need those disruption pieces. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to get back to the short-term missions piece just briefly because, I mean, is there, from your experience, you know, 16 years in Haiti and doing research and interacting with people, is there any hope that we can actually do these cross-cultural engagements in a way that is ethical or mm-hmm. uh, what, what, what does that look like? Um, so uh, relating back to that, I would suggest... Um, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So when I was approaching this research for my my master's, um, there is a term that was created by Erica Bornstein that is called relational empathy. And so her outlook is kind of why people do charitable acts. Um, that was her whole research on this. And she came up with the term relational empathy that describes um the fact where, you know, obviously all of us can have empathy, of course. We, it's, you know, we understand um, that things are terrible, but with relational empathy or that things can be terrible for someone else, but the relational empathy that she brought in was this component of you understand that not only is empathy about a situation in which you yourself would never want to be in. That's why you empathize with somebody. But the relational aspect of that is that you as a Westerner is not likely to ever be in that situation. Um, So she kind of brought that into her research. And I took that um, and created my own term, which I call accountable empathy. Um, So how do we take this idea of understanding our position as Westerners, as people coming to do these these jobs, these acts of service, and how can we be held accountable for them? Um, the best way is, of course, number one, knowing the background and the history of the community and the context and the country in which you want to work within. And then number two, and putting it, I mean, just bluntly, if you don't have a specific skill set and you're coming and you're building houses or you're doing childcare or you're doing this, you're doing that, you are essentially taking opportunity away from the community. You are essentially depriving that community of socioeconomic and political livelihood. So there, in one sense, um, I know people always ask me, they're like, well, what would you approve of? You know, things like medical missions, I've never had a problem with it <laughs> because, you know, it's understood that they're not only there to perform a service in which may not be obtainable or accessible in that condition, but they're also able to train people 
who may not have that knowledge and they're able to provide something, a skill set that can later on be self-sustainable without continuous help. So when it comes to people, though, that may not have a specific skill set, um, honestly, I tell people, you know, what is the point? Why not just be a tourist? If you really want to go and love on people, be a tourist. Engage with the local community. Don't get yourself in, you know, those, I'm sure you've seen it being in Tunisia, uh, you know, those little trucks that have like the the back end that's been turned into what looks like a cage. <laughs> like, okay. yeah. So it's like you don't have any actual contact with people until you're giving them something. And one of my best friends in Haiti, um, his name is Jimmy. He is just an amazing human being. He told me something when I was doing this work that I will never forget. And I was actually sitting at his restaurant one day and I was going to pay for food that was at his actual restaurant. You know, I was like, you're providing me a service, blah, blah, blah. And he said, Matt, all you white people, all you Westerners, you only ever show me this side of your hand. You only ever show me this side of your hand. He goes, I want to see this side. I want to see what happens when you turn that hand over and you show me the side that is receptive, that accepts and is okay to be given things, not just coming with a perspective of give, 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 give. You can also be here to receive. Yeah. And for me, I think that the best way that we can approach these kinds of trips would be like cultural trips where you can interact of course, you can interact with the community in a faith-based and spiritual way. Absolutely. But doing so through a tourist lens where you're not coming necessarily to do something. You're there to learn. And mm-hmm. have churches, you know, set up uh, collaborative trips where maybe you get to sit down and talk with the community one-on-one. Maybe you have focus group discussions as to how best your church and your group can support a long-term type of development, a long-term type of sustainability within that community and letting the community take the front seat, letting them be the drivers of these types of trips that tell you, okay, we want you to come here and we're going to take you to the most beautiful waterfall, the most beautiful 200-year-old like architects and sites and attractions, and we're going to teach you about our country the way that we see it. And then we can sit down together and figure out how best you can work with us or even for us, not work around us, not work as, you know, the boss, essentially. Um, So for me, I think that when you don't have a specific skill set that is required, The best thing to do is be a tourist. I mean, I have learned more in Haiti just going on my own and living with my friends and exploring and going out and meeting new people than I ever did on a mission trip. Um, And I think that a lot of that, too, is because within this trip, these, these concepts of the way that they're conducted, we have a mindset that we know what's best because this is what's been done. And this is mm-hmm. what is sustainable for us on our mm-hmm. end. We're only ever showing this side of our hand and we're comfortable with that right. because we don't know the difference. But what would happen if we actually just sat down and was like, 
what best do I need? You, you don't need me to go and build a school. You want me to sit and sing in your choir. You want me to play guitar because your guy is sick this right. Sunday. You, you need me to help stay after and fold up the chairs. Those are the types of relation. Those are the types of settings in which relationships yeah. can truly be built that are long-term and have a comprehensive rapport between showing people both sides of your hand. Right. Yeah, no, that's good. So so are you saying that as you are currently a tourist in Portugal right now that you have not visited any group homes or anything like that? <laughs> no, I do not think that the government would authorize me. <laughs> no, they would not. No, they would not. And I've, and I've worked in foster care uh, in California. They don't authorize it here either. No, that's, mm-hmm. that's a little too geeky of me. Um, but, uh, no, that's, that's really, that's really, uh, important. It's okay to be a tourist. That's, mm-hmm. that's probably a good, a good thing to, <laughs> for, for a lot of our listeners to, to, to think about. Yeah. Um, you know, all right. I just wanted to add one more thing, but like also taking away the fear component. I think that yeah. when we go on these trips or we conduct them, there is almost like an otherness a distance between those we serve because we look at ourselves as those who are giving. Um, And as tourists, you know, you can literally be like, oh my gosh, I'm literally lost. Like I'm lost on this street. What do I do? And you just ask somebody and you're like, I'm trying to go see the Citadel. And they'll be like, up there. And the next thing you know, you start talking to them and you get to know about them, about their lives. And people, especially in Haiti, are much more receptive to a conversation that doesn't make them feel like they're some dangerous, savage community. They like to be humanized just like everyone else. And I think that sometimes these trips can very much so dehumanize uh, the community in which we're trying to target. Yeah, no, that's really good. And and really good things for us to walk away with. I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier, which is the emotional piece. Um, in your current doctoral work, you do discuss emotional labor. This is, mm-hmm. uh, I know you were at the Haiti Family Care Network or, or presented there at least um, the Better Together conference not too long ago. And I was able to listen to your presentation and I thought it was, it was interesting. Um, and um, because I, you know, teach on issues around children at risk, um, we're, we're always, or I am always really um, uh, sensitive to any time a kid is needing to work. Now, when we talk about labor in general, um, you know, child labor is a reality. Uh, In a lot of countries, child labor, it's like either the kid's going to work or the kid's going to school. And we know that if they're able to go to school, then that is bodes well for their long-term future. Um, But it is interesting when we think about kids in orphanages as doing any form of labor. And in your work, you're pulling on uh, on other scholars that have discussed emotional labor. But can you maybe just explain what that is? What is emotional labor and and how does it apply to orphans and vulnerable kids? Yeah. Um, So up until I think, honestly, I don't want to say that I'm the only one that's looking at this concept within child protection. Um, But the term originally came from Arlie Hochschild in 1983, where she was just discussing service industry jobs. Um, She was looking at how people who have to interact with the public 
have to essentially um, make a mindset for themselves in order to do so. So for instance, with this idea of customer service, maybe you have an irate customer, but you can't tell them to leave. You can't tell them to go away because they are a customer providing you money, providing you financial stability, which essentially is your job. It's your livelihood. So what do you do with an irate customer? You smile. You say, yes, man, we'll get the manager for you. Yes, we'll accommodate you. And on the inside, you might be thinking, I just want them to leave. I just want them to get out. <laughs> you know. So this is kind of that idea of emotional labor. And prior to my research, what I was finding on emotional labor that was making those connections to institutionalized care was honestly from the perspective of the foreigners, the Westerners, the visitors. How did they feel in those moments interacting with those children? And for me, I started to ask myself, well, why haven't we spoken to the children about this? Like, how do the children feel about this? So when we think, like you said, you know, of kids in orphanages, we're not thinking of labor. Or when we think of labor, we're like, Okay, that's the kid that has to haul three buckets, three gallons of water, you know, back and forth each day. That's the kid that has to clean the whole house. That's the kid that has to do physical activities that are yeah. visible, that we can measure, that we see that there is a capitalist value tied to it in some way. And for me, I thought, well, why not we look at that from an emotional standpoint? Um, so for me, emotional labor, when it comes to institutionalized care, is the emotions that are being displayed as physical behavior. So for instance, when visitors are coming to an orphanage, uh, the first thing that they're expecting is for children to run up to them, to grab their hands, to hug them, to essentially right. just crawl all over them. But what I wanted to know was what does a child have to do to get into that mindset where they go, okay, the group is coming, the group is coming, so we all have to put on smiles, right. we all have to you know, put on our best clothes, and we know that when they come, we have to sing a song, we have to do this, we have to do that. You know, telling them no is out of the question. You want a photo? Sure. How many do you want? You want me to sit on your lap? Okay, that's fine. You want me to play a game? Even though this child may be sick, they may not have slept well that night, or maybe they just right. don't want to interact with you. And in right. their mind, they have to make a process that says, okay, okay, I have to get myself like mentally psyched up in order to do this, in order to be able to interact. And that's the emotional labor. So- right. Emotion doesn't always have to fit the affective behavior being shown, but the labor in that is that they have to make themselves feel somewhat agreeable in order mm -hmm. to make these types of outward appearances that right. are desired by the Westerners who are coming. Um, yeah. And, it's and that's profoundly boring. That, I mean, that's exhausting. I, I have very vivid um images of in in that are ingrained into my own psyche of uh kids that were at the children's home that i worked at and mm -hmm. uh, we would do like 
okay, we're going to record a video. Everybody go put on your African garb. And yeah. I'm like I'm like filming it and I edit it. This is like over a decade ago. How <laughs> yeah, like a decade, over a decade ago. But I'm like, I, as I'm like scanning the kids' faces, like I could be like, oh, she is not happy. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like, you can see that, but it's like, well, what's 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 happy about this? Like the staff mm-hmm. said, we're going to film this thing or some visitors are coming, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, yeah, that I could see why that would be very taxing, you mm-hmm. know, and that's what labor does. It taxes people. It, it, it exhausts people. Yeah. And there's also like an emotional connectivity that I don't think that people, again, you know, like going back to Doug, he felt such a strong you know, desire to serve because he was continuously met with these, you know, smiles and these happy faces and these happy attitudes, so to speak, without ever thinking like, okay, so maybe you did make a connection with the child. Maybe those children, especially in, you know, the institutionalized care setting in Haiti where you're, you don't even have one-on-one care. So, you know, children are very much so deprived and starving for affection from people. And so you have that juxtapose where they may not want you there to have to exert that emotional labor, but when they do, there's this type of connectivity that just happens because we're humans. And then the next thing you know, you have a child who really likes one of the kids that's playing with them. And then they leave after a week and their tears, you know, I have one of my friends who used to work in an orphanage for years. He was the manager. And he said, you know, I used to have to dry their eyes as the next group was coming in and get them ready because they're sitting there crying because one group has left and they have, you know, through this emotional labor, made some sort of meaningful connection because they're children and they require that in order to just grow up. We all require, you know, connectivity. And so he's sitting there wiping their eyes, getting them ready for the next group. And then a week later, they're going to be crying again and getting them ready for the next group. Right, right. And, and you know, even as you describe your friend and how he was trying to console kids and prepare kids to do it again, what is it that, that is being pursued here? What's being pursued is not just the viability of the organization, but financial, the finances themselves. And when we think about labor, what we're saying is, look, you're working towards what end? Well, mm-hmm. normally people work so they can get paid, mm-hmm. but the kids are doing emotional labor so that they can interact and then the organization can raise funds and then the staff can get paid and the staff in the U.S. can get paid. Mm-hmm. So what do we what do we call it when somebody else has to work for somebody else's uh, financial gain? We call that exploitation. Yeah. <laughs> That's literally the definition of what exploitation Absolutely. is. So it is it is something that we have to really kind of step back and kind of think like, are we okay with this? Because there are financial Mm -hmm. issues here uh, that -hmm. when the kids smile and do their dance and all this, uh, it's work for them. And Mm -hmm. the end is financial gain for somebody else, you know, because we know that the kids don't grow up and then do uh, do well for the most part afterwards. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to. So at that and. Apologies to all our listeners um, that this might be a little more harsh <laughs> around orphanages than we tend to be on Think Orphan. Obviously, you guys know where uh, where Phil and I kind of land on that question, but um, I do just kind of want to acknowledge that uh, if you are loving kids and supporting an orphanage, do your best and reach out. We can help you, you know. Um, but I I also want to acknowledge that this 
act of emotional labor and some of what you uh, researched around um, extended beyond the orphanage setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the it, it, it actually went beyond the time that the kids were in the orphanage and even into their home placement after being yeah. reunified as a child or as a young adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so emotional labor is still happening in that situation. Can you explain that dynamic to us? And, and you know, what are some of those challenges that that people might fail to appreciate um, when promoting their even reunification? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so backtracking a little bit to be able to answer this, um, when we think about like that exploitative labor, um, of course, the children are not seeing a financial gain to that. But they are being told, you know, if you don't do this, if you don't do X, you're not going to get to sleep inside tonight. You're not going to get to eat tonight. You don't get to play with the other kids on downtime. So there's these types of threats that reinforce a mentality that if I don't do this, this emotional labor, then I'm not going to get my most basic needs to even be met. Right. And then this transcend this transcends into the reunification process. Um, for me, this was honestly something that I had not had not necessarily been on my radar until while I was doing this research, until I started doing home visits. When I started talking to the families and the children that were, you know, post reunification. Um, and something that came up a lot was number one especially when children are very young entering into the orphanage, they are making familiar bonds with people who are not their family. And then they come back to a family where maybe they've only seen them once a year, if that, because their family does not have the financial means to come and see them and visit them as often as they would like. So for these children and for the parents, it's like you're living with strangers all of the sudden. So for the kids, what do they do? They revert back to an emotional labor to ensure that their position in the family becomes solidified. That, you know, as me, I mean, I can remember, I'm sure you do and all of us, you know, when we were teenagers and stuff, I talked back to my parents. (laughs) Like, you know, I had no problem being like, I have an opinion about that. (laughs) But one of the things that I noticed, especially with, um, the older kids who had grown up really most of their lives in the orphanages, they were terrified to say something or to speak out against their parents. Not even like, we're not talking about just like being, you know, bratty kids or whatever, but it's like, you know, I had one participant that was telling me, you know, I used to hate, like she hated a specific type of food that is called Tom Tom in Haiti. Um, It's, you know, very cold rice that you kind of eat uh, in one big thing. And it's it's hard for me. I don't like it either. <laughs> but she was telling me that her mother, it was one of her mother's favorites, and she would cook it all the time. And she hated it. But she was scared to tell her mom. Because she was like, well, what if she, you know, gets mad and she kicked me out? Because I'm an adult now. What if I upset her to the point where, Children are now growing up in this orphanage setting that says, if I don't produce this emotional labor, I am not going to be loved. I am not going to have a love that is unconditional. And, you know, of course, we know that like 
parents and stuff, they're not seeing it that way. Of course, they would never be like, oh, you're not eating the food that I prepared, so now you must leave. But for them, for children who are in this position that are being reunited, they don't know how to have a voice. They don't know how to to interact with people who are virtually strangers for the first year or two of reunification. Right. So you have this side from the children where they're continuing to produce emotional love in order to, in their mind, solidify a love from, or excuse me, um, yeah, they're producing emotional labor, not emotional love. <laughs> they're producing emotional labor in order to solidify their love from their family. And it takes time for them to learn that their parents' love is unconditional. But then, you know, I kind of saw that and I was like, you know, I have seen this, you know, prior. This didn't really shock me that much. But what really, you know, hit me like a big red truck, honestly, was the emotional labor that families start, you know, encompassing when their children are brought back to them. Because many of these families have, you know, and it's the first thing I always tell them, you don't need to be embarrassed. You don't need to feel like you have done something wrong. This was something that was forced upon you and there was a choice and you made a choice because you loved your child. And you're seeing a lot of, like I'm seeing a lot of parents that will end up doing emotional labor, not even realizing because they have these feelings of guilt of shame, of, you know, dishonesty, where they feel like they have, you know, lied to their children or, you know, abandoned them. And so it's working both ways where families have to learn to trust each other again in that kind of unconditional familia bond and doing that in a way where they're all producing emotional labor in order to get back to a point where us who have grown up in that familia setting, we wouldn't even fathom it's not even on our radar you know to 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 make an emotional adjustment in order to solidify our position in our own family um so for me that was something that was super profoundly you know it was super shocking because i was thinking you know of course parents have their feelings about this you know but i can promise you i have sat with over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families and there has never never once been a parent that said i didn't love my child i did it out of love for my child but now i don't know how to convince my child that i love them Mm -hmm. that i'm going to keep loving them no matter what no matter what my actions were i did it out of love and so the emotional labor becomes the bridge essentially for them to try to find each other again. And it's not only a non-sustainable bridge, but it's an extremely mentally, physically, and emotionally detrimental bridge to try to cross. Yeah, well, it's it's a very fraught situation. That's that's for sure. And all the more reason why we need to really double down on trying to prevent family separation in the first place Absolutely. and really strengthen uh, families and uh, provide interventions and support. Look, people need support and interventions at different times. I like uh, my family has benefited from WIC in the past. You know, it's like like there there are interventions that can actually strengthen families, and those are the things that we really need mm-hmm. to be focused on. Mac, this has been uh, really enlightening. 
we got two questions that we ask all of our guests uh, before we go. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to those before we uh, land the plane. So in one or two minutes, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children as well as their families with excellence? Um, so one of the biggest, most profound books for me was Erica Bornstein's Disquieting Gifts. Um, that was excellent. It was it's about charity, and she does explore the concept of uh, institutionalized care. Um, it was kind of the first thing that made me, oh, click in my mind, like, this is it. This is real. This is an actual phenomenon that's happening. Um, also, okay. the book Travesty in Haiti by Timoth Dr. Timothy Schwartz is excellent. Um, of course, anything by Dr. Paul Farmer um, is amazing. His um, All of his books that relate to structural violence kind of provide an excellent historical background as to how these uh, nuances end up being our present day phenomenon. Um, right. And then lastly, I would say um, Killing with Kindness uh, by Dr. Mark Schuler. Okay. All right. That's what happens when we get an academic on here. We, we <laughs> ask her when we get more. Well, I, 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 uh, Timothy Schwartz book, I have read and mm -hmm. I agree, it was eye-opening. Uh, and he's an anthropologist as you are. Mm -hmm. So I could see, uh, why there would be that, uh, th why that lens is so valuable. And, and I learned a lot from travesty in Haiti. I'm going to yeah. have to pick up the, yeah, lines. yeah. He and I have right. a lot of good combos about that and stuff. Oh, he's, okay. yeah. you know, the author. That's cool. Uh, I know I, him. I know Mark Schuler. This is the anthro world. We kind of, we, yeah. especially like in Haiti, we're such a small community that we right, know right. each other very well. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I I will double down on, on the Timothy Schwartz uh, recommendation because I like that book a lot too. And I don't know him. Uh, all right. Uh, what person has most impacted your thinking on how we can love uh, orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? Um, honestly, this won't be an academic this won't, I don't have a, a person in which you could read about, but, um, and if she watches this, I hope she's not bawling as I say this, but Tasha, Tasha Pierce, Pearson, like she uh, is the founder of Haiti Mama and, you know, starting this research would never have been possible without her. Um, the way that she not only presented a new way of thinking, but the way that she has encouraged me to seek this type of uh, pathway towards child protection has been honestly like I could never thank her enough for the way that she has changed and shaped my way of thinking. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's always a journey and it's good to journey alongside other people. So, uh, Mac, thank you so much for coming on Think Orphan and yeah, uh, for sharing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a blessing to just uh, learn from your work and your experience. And, and yeah, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, that was a, a an enlightening conversation uh, that I was able to have with Mac. Um, I learned a lot. You know, obviously, I, 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 you chide me sometimes in terms of uh, geeking out on academic and educational <laughs> things. So the fact that I get to talk with uh, somebody like Mac, who has been working on her dissertation and so much of her studies in grad school and in her doctoral work are centered around these issues that we talk about all the time. So 
I know I gained a lot uh, from talking with Mac, but uh, Phil, what did you think of the of the conversation? Yeah, I I thought it was great. I I, I laughed. I'm laughing at that because I was thinking, oh my, you're like, this is the intellectual recommendation match for Brandon Stiver. Like this was this was awesome. And what's funny is like I I we, we joke about it, but I actually have a doctorate even though we never talk about it. It's just a dip. It's not a PH doctorate. It's a J doctorate, but you know, that that's all right. Um, but I, I thought it was a great, great conversation. You know, there's so important issues. I had so many flashbacks, the things that we used to do at uh, La Providencia, as far as we did summer teams, we did short-term teams and we changed the way we did them every year based on the feedback like especially when i first started because i knew about all these things and i knew you know reading one helping hearts reading these other books talking to different people there was so much i was obviously researching all around the world and so i'm like man we cannot be making these same mistakes but there is good that's why we always ask what is the good that can come out of short-term trips obviously she started on a short-term trip so this is now someone advocating for best practices who started on a short-term trip so we can't just say throw the baby out with the bathwater, right so what does um, it look like? And so we had these debriefs and I remember 2010, 2011, I started in 2009. So that when I'd go down at the end of the summer and I'd ask these questions of, you know, what, what, what were the hard parts? What were the things that didn't go well? And they told I heard, you know, I remember one story in particular, I'm not going to get into all of them. One story in particular, one of the kids, because back the first year or so, we, we had teams go into the homes, kind of showing them the homes and touring the homes and whatever the kids would not we never said to the kids you got to do a song and dance or whatever but they felt that not not performing as much as just connecting with brief connections with more people every single week and they would they would connect you know not deep but as deep as you can in a week right and at the end of the summer one girl in particular was like banging her head against the wall after that she didn't have that stimulation of the teams. And we're like, okay, teams don't go into the homes. They don't touch the homes. You know, you can go and do stuff, you know, do different things. But so much of it was how can we build relationships, you know, with the teams? That was always my focus anyway. But I thought, oh, relationships with the families, that's cool. But what we didn't think about is just those, and especially those first few years, because some of those kids had only been in the homes for a, relatively short time year or two and so that's one side of it the other side of it was the team side i would go and talk with the teams and there were teams that were coming down all they were doing they literally flew to the country went to the hotel went from the hotel to the site built some stuff and and they weren't contractors they built you know the home or they built the medical clinic or they built something and they'd come down and they'd do that team there were six or seven of them and i said to him i said um and then they come back to the hotel eat dinner and go to bed because they were exhausted from working all day. And, and most of them did not work jobs that were manual labor jobs. So they were completely wiped out. And so I said to him, I said, why are you doing this? You know, I said, what do you actually do at home? And one of them like started, uh, came in and, and started the franchise, helped the franchises of McDonald's start. And he's like a total business guy. And I said, have you thought about coming down and helping start businesses down here? He's like, no, I never thought about that. It's like, you'd be a phenomenal consultant. What do you think about that? 
I, and he's like, ah, oh, I never thought about it. Right. And I said, and how much are you actually spending time with the, with the community, with the workers, with the employees, with the parents, with these different people who are, you know, we don't really do dinners. You know, I suggest this, you know, the rest of this week, don't work as much building. If you don't build at all, that's fine. Spend time with the people, get to know them, help understand how you can help with your giftings, with your skill sets, with your business acumen, with what you have. And the rest of the team, one was a teacher, one was an administrator. I'm like, we have needs, all these needs. You can come in and consult. So he's like, oh, you know, we, you know, I'd never thought about it. So the rest of that week, they did that. He told me at the end of the week, he goes, Phil, we completely missed the boat every other trip we'd come down. We yeah. completely missed it. And I go, well, don't feel guilty about it. Let's just make some change in the future. So the next year, they brought a smaller team of an administrator who helped with the administrators, a teacher who helped train the teachers. You know, he started working on building businesses. And it was frustrating because it doesn't look like it does in the US. But he did that. He's like, what a change. It was so good. It was, so that was one of the coolest. And that church never sent a, a building team again. They right. sent teams based on our relationship, based on what they knew they could help with. And that was something that I think was so important that came out of that conversation with Mackenzie as well is, you know, don't just come down and do stuff. Right. Come down. And if you want to come down, come down and build friendships. Yeah. As you would with your neighbor. Totally. As you would with someone down the street who, you know, someone, you know, if you moves into the community, right? You don't just go in and go, Hey, can I help build your playhouse? No, you say, Hey, let's have dinner. Yeah. More to yeah. the house. Yeah. So, I love that receiving too, because that receiving is something that I've said. Sometimes the best thing, and sometimes it could be the only thing you do on a trip is receive because it gives the other person dignity, gives the other people dignity, gives them that it doesn't give it to them. It, it, it reminds them that they have it. Sure. Yeah. Right. I know. And, and so anyway. No, that's good, dude. And, and I think, especially for us as believers to enter into those spaces on equal footing and to say, Hey, we all want to learn. We all want to build relationship and having that mutuality reciprocity, like that is so much more valuable than, you know, locking into that mindset of, oh, I'm just going to do something, you know, I'm just going to, you know, it, it's just, it, it, there's so much more value and, and Christ's example was so relational as well. So, I mean, we talked about so much with, with Mac and, you know, of course the reality is a lot of stuff that we do and even stuff that she's kind of highlighted, um, it does need to stop, you know, like the, like there are some yeah. things where it's just like, yeah, we do actually oh, totally. stop certain things as well. And, but at the same time, you know, we live in a globalized world, you know, all these multinational corporations, they, they know how to kind of build these supply chains that go international. We should be building relational, you know, chains that, that also go international, right. especially because right. we, as followers of Christ, we are in a global, you know, family that, that stretches yep. beyond borders. And, uh, exactly right. and God, you know, is calling us to uh, to, to, to live out his kingdom life in all nations. So, so yeah. anyways, I, I, I just, I, I learned so much from her. Yeah. I mean, another thing that kind of just stuck out to me that I'll just underscore, you know, um, we are now a few weeks into 
this terrible conflict uh, in the Middle East. Uh, we are absolutely praying for peace uh, in the in the region. Um, we've we're almost a couple years into this conflict in Ukraine. Um, and it's easy when these things kind of like pop up to like forget that other stuff is still going on. So yeah. I, I do kind of feel somewhat of a responsibility with this platform to just kind of say, we are praying for what happened in Israel and what's happening in the Gaza Strip. And we are praying for what's happening in Ukraine. And we are praying for what's happening in Haiti. You know, all of these things are on God's heart. So we want to make sure that we are saying... Right all of these things need to be highlighted. So I also appreciate, you know, getting some on the ground uh, uh, view uh, from Mac as she has been living in Haiti for so long. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's really important that we remember all of these uh, conflicts and all of these uh, totally. uh, issues throughout the world. So that's a great point. And it's something that I was talking to somebody about this the other day. And he said, you know, or that we minimize things sometimes too. So I think there are these things we need to be praying about and they are massive and they are awful. And they're, they're things that we can pretty much all we can do is pray about them because we can't do anything about the conflict in Israel and, and Gaza. We can't do anything about the conflict in the Ukraine. We, me, me, Phil Dark here in California. Like if I go over there, I get in the way, you know, I'm not going to go fight. I'm not going to go, I, you know, I, I, can I advocate? Yeah. But uh, like we can do that here. We can advocate for stuff. But the reality is those complex are, those issues are so complex. The things are so nuanced. If somebody can't just say, oh, I'm pro-Palestine, oh, I'm pro-Israel. No, they're, there's, they're, they're human beings. I love people on both sides. Now, I do not, the, you know, Hamas, no, like that, that's terrorism. And so there's things that we can agree on. But if you try to go and go, oh, well, this and that, it's, it's not as simple as that. Same with this issue that we talk about on Think Orphan. It's so nuanced. But there's also things that are going on everywhere. Honduras, U.S., Namibia, Tunisia, you know, everywhere. Every country has issues. And so my, it reminds me of when my, my friend, his daughter had leukemia when she was five. And it was, it was the church we were planting in Atlanta back in 2000, about 2002. And, and we, I was in a Bible study with, with the pastor. And, and I remember almost every week somebody would say, I know it's not what you're going through. It's not nearly as bad as that, but my daughter's sick or my family, I have a family member who's going through it. And he stopped him every time. He says, hey, stop. You are still going through those issues and they are still major issues. Just because it's not as big as my issue doesn't mean it's not a real issue, right? right? And that's something that we got to remember too is, is oftentimes because when the news the news cycle has to go to the shiny object. A lot of ministries, unfortunately, also go to shiny objects. Rather, there are some ministries, that's what they do. American Red Cross, that's what they do. But we got to be focused on what God puts us to, not the shiny object. And that's something that is so important in the work we do, um, to be able to focus on what we have in front of us, what God's given us, because those issues will not go away when something else happens and they, and they're not just going to be taken care of if we do a little bit of work and then go somewhere else. These are legacy issues that if you can't commit to the rest of your life, doing something in a particular place, if that's what you feel called to do, then I'd say, just let somebody else do it and pray for that person. Who's that right person that can be there for the long game. 
And it's not that everything you do is not like, you know, so anyway, that, that that's even that's good, man. But yeah, so that's something that I just thought of when you were talking about that, because it's so, these issues are, are so important. And I mean, I could talk for three and a half hours about that, all the issues that she talks about in that interview, right. but I know we got to bring this sucker to a close. So yeah, well, yeah. And I think uh, suffice it to say, we need to pray more. And for the things that were are within our control, we need to do better and keep learning. Yes. So, and that's obviously, that's, that's the standard approach for the Think Orphan podcast. So, uh, yep. anyways, uh, speaking of learning, uh, Phil, you maybe got a quick recommendation for us. I know Mackenzie loaded us up and I gave an amen to one of yeah. hers, uh, that book by Timothy Schwartz, which was, which was really eye opening. but, uh, you weren't on the show and I think you might have maybe, uh, maybe a good one for us as well. Completely different completely different uh it's not even related to there there might have been an orphaned or a vulnerable child in the book but it's called boys in the boat and the reason i want to recommend this it is the best it's i will say it's the best sports book i've ever read um it's a great book whether you're a sports person or not it's an incredible book about teamwork and all of us are on teams and so I would strongly leadership and teamwork that book does so incredibly well and I want to recommend it now because Christmas time, uh, the movie is coming out. George Clooney's directing it. Um, I'm not going to ruin the book at all. I'm just going to say, if you do, if you love sports books, but even if you don't love sports books, if you like books about teamwork and leadership, this book, read the book before you watch the movie because it has so many great nuggets throughout it, great quotes at the beginning of every chapter, incredible, incredible story, but more i would say more incredible uh lessons we can learn and so yeah it's it's definitely a different read than those other reads um it's a true story but it's written like a novel and you can you will be in, in you will be captured by it i listened to it as well and the the reading was phenomenal so i would i would recommend the audible version as well but uh, if you want if you're a reader and you want to actually pick up that book and read the pages uh in print then you will not be disappointed. All right, that's a good one, man. I will have to check that out myself, and and I have not been to the movies in so long. But when you say a movie's coming out, I'm like, on Netflix? Where's it coming out? <laughs> but yeah, but that sounds like a fantastic story. I'll have to check that out. Might be a good date night, like during Christmas time, you know? Oh, you know right, yeah, are? I'm supposed remember to... remember what date nights are? I was going to say, I was like, oh, I that rings a bell. No, my <laughs> wife and I... We do date after eight, which is basically meaning we get takeout. And then once the yeah. kids are in bed, then we have our date at home. I like it. I like it. I like it. You got to be creative with the with the young families. So folks, um, with all that, thank you so much for being a part of this. And we, we talked about, you know, reviews. We talked about, you know, listens. We talked about downloads. But at the end of the day, what we love hearing are your stories. So please share those with us because that's why we do this is for impact, knowing that everyone listening to this podcast is doing something about it. So do something about it. Take what you're learning from this episode, take what you're learning from this show and use it. We pray that you use it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children and families better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple of weeks. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.